Welcome to Catching the Mole, the podcast where two wildlife lovers try to see as many critters as possible. We hope you enjoy the stories we share and get just as excited about wildlife as we do. No critters were actually caught during the making of these episodes. one of your usual hosts for catching them all. And I'm glad you're here because I have a very awesome guest um, to talk a little bit more about grassland birds. Um, Her name is October and she's pretty cool. October. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Will you introduce yourself? Yeah. So my name is October Greenfield. I work for the Piedmont Environmental Council, which is a nonprofit land trust um, in Warrington. And my title is Wildlife Habitat Restoration Coordinator. So I work a lot of, um, I do a lot of one-on-one meetings with landowners who are interested in improving wildlife habitat on their properties um, and kind of uh, my specialty is grassland birds. So I get to do a lot of really fun work um, improving and protecting grassland bird habitat. That is amazing. And um, our episode actually just launched today while we're speaking of me going through a bunch of stories or going through the story I shared with you about my little grasshopper sparrow that I fell in yeah. love with. And then we kind of just recap some common grassland songbird species in Virginia. And I say common, like with air quotes, because of their declining. Right. Um, before we dive in too much more, I guess on the human aspect, how's summer treating you? Hot. Yes. It's yeah. been so hot lately. Um, so my kind of field season wrapped up um, about a month ago, finished doing grassland bird nesting stuff. Um, And since then, I've just been like indoors. It's either like a million degrees outside or it's pouring rain like it's doing right now. So, (laughs) yes, absolutely. Um, All right. Well, I'm going to dive in. Bring up if there's something you want to share outside of the questions I have, of course, like interrupt, let me know. Um, But the first question I wrote down is asking more to describe what nesting season in Virginia in particular is like for grassland bird species. Sure. So nesting season for grassland birds in Virginia, um, I would generally consider it to start in mid to late April. Uh, We have several species that um, partners have been doing research in the area, especially Smithsonian's Virginia Working Landscapes, looking at the nesting timing um, and success of many of these grassland species. Um, So some of the species like Eastern Meadowlarks, grasshopper sparrows, they can get started pretty early, um, mid to late April. Um, I would say kind of like the core nesting season is really like beginning of May through end of June. Um, But some are a little slow or they have multiple attempts. Um, so I generally consider the nesting season as a whole to be from April 15th to July 15th. Okay, cool. That's that summer, spring, summer. Um, yeah. And I didn't write this down, but I did think you mentioned 
when we were talking briefly about how wet our season has been this year, um, I'm going to just interject with like, okay, you said that that's challenging for grassland birds. Um, can you elaborate on why such a wet season would? Yeah. So this, uh, this spring was, um, kind of unseasonably wet and cold to start out, um, which can present challenges for nesting birds. Um, often if they have eggs that they're sitting on or young chicks in a nest, um, either, you know, the chicks, because it gets too cold, may not survive a night. Um, and if it's really bad weather, um, you can sometimes see adults will abandon their nest because they have to sit on their nests no matter the weather, right? So if it's pouring rain for days on end, um, sometimes you'll see some of those adults will end up abandoning the nest yeah. for their own sake. So they are not sitting freezing cold for days on end. Um, so that does present challenges. Um, and if, an, if an adult is leaving the nest, you know, for a longer than normal period of time because of that weather, it also makes them more vulnerable to predation from snakes and raccoons and foxes and things like that when they're kind of left unattended so yeah oh man so now we can end up talking forever because now I'm kind of thinking <laughs> um or I've never spent too much time thinking about the ways that a grassland nesting bird is going to deter predators yeah from, you know like I, I mean because we all so commonly are just like oh a nest it's in tree it's up high right it's safer. And um, so I never spent a terrible amount of time thinking about like, how are critters just not eating their eggs all day long? It's really because these things are so stinking hard to find. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's their main like defense against predators for their nests is they're just so hard to find. Some of them are so tiny. They're like hidden deep underneath the grasses. Um, so really just being really well camouflaged, being tiny, and um, it's probably hard work for predators to find those things when the grass, especially when it gets taller and taller throughout the season. Yeah. Easier meals elsewhere, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, and then I kind of want to go back to seasonality. Um, I don't know how much you know about, so we talked briefly in the podcast about like, okay, we're focusing on Virginia because that's what we're familiar with, but obviously grassland habitats as a whole are declining or um, experiencing loss throughout the country. Mm -hmm. um, what is, do you know of any different in seasonality of nesting season as you like get into the Midwest? Um, is it, do you think it's still probably that similar April to um, July range? Yeah, so I um, I grew up in southeastern South Dakota, and I went to college at South Dakota State University and studied grassland birds while I was there, um, and they actually consider in South Dakota the nesting season to be from like early to maybe mid-May until even August 1st. Okay. And I think that's just because it's more likely that, you know, in April, you're going to get a snowstorm out there than it is likely out here. Um, so there can be a little bit of shift depending on where you are in the country. For example, if you go a couple states further south, um, I would bet that some of those birds uh, would have an extended nesting season because the weather is just better for longer. And you also have, you know, some of these grassland birds are long distance migratory birds. So if they are nesting 
in South Carolina, they don't necessarily have as long of a journey south. So they have a little bit of extra time for nesting. So yeah, it can vary a little bit depending on weather and location and things like that. Yeah. Um, what is one of our longest migrants of our grassland species? Yeah. So the bobolink um, is a little songbird. Um, it looks like it kind of has a backwards tuxedo on with a little like yellow pom-pom on the top of its head. And they can migrate like 12,000 miles. Um, they nest or they spend their winters, you know, down in South America, pretty far south. And they come up, you know, to Virginia or even for, you know, all the way up into Maine and the Midwest. Um, so they are one of the longest distance migrants of any birds we have around here. So that's pretty amazing for these little tiny birds to make such a dis such a long distance migration. I love their little helmets. I don't know, like I you nailed it, little pom pom. Yeah. Totally it was like they're wearing like a little winter stocking on yeah. top of their head. And um, okay, well now um you don't strike me as the type of person who like is like, oh, it's pronounced this not this. So I go around calling them Bobo links all the time. Does that ruffle your feathers? No, at all? not okay. really. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I learn them as bobolinks. I'm sure other people learn them as different things. That's no. like plover versus plover or whatever. Like I I've learned never it as a plover, that. but I've heard people say it as like, it rhymes with lover. Oh. So it's, I think it's kind of like where you grew up and who yeah. you learned it from, like jeer falcon. I've heard that pronounced a million different ways. Someone yeah. might say I just pronounced it wrong, but that's the way I learned it in ornithology. So fair enough. Fair enough. But we all know what we're talking about, right? Yeah. So like that's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so this is gonna be a broad question because okay. we really talked about habitat loss in general, right? We were kind of just like, you know, trees get a lot of attention, mm -hmm. grasslands maybe don't. What would you think as two people that like um, Courtney and myself, we are, we have degrees in biology, but we have not spent a ton of time studying grasslands in particular um, and this, this range of ecology. So what do you think we most likely missed <laughs> when talking about grassland habitat lost in general? Well, I would say, you know, for the general public or people who have not studied grasslands or are not deeply involved with conservation, I think grasslands are often overlooked mm -hmm. or people think of them as like these vast expanses of like native prairie somewhere in like Kansas or something. Mm -hmm. But that's not really what grasslands have to look like. Often they are these agricultural fields where we have cattle, we have horses, people are cutting hay on them. And these birds are relying on these fields that are being worked uh, for agricultural production. And so the way that um, humans are managing these fields that we are using for our own benefit can have a major influence on um, the nesting success of these birds, whether the habitat is there for them, you know, in different seasons, in the winter, when they're roosting on the ground, that sort of thing. So I think um, just generally, like grasslands are kind of overlooked as, yeah. you know, you drive past these fields and it doesn't really look like there's much going on unless you kind of stop and like observe for a while. And if you just sit like at the edge of a field for a while, I think people... Uh, my own coworkers too have mentioned this to me, like 
they never realized how much is going on like deep in these grasses that you don't really notice until you stop and look and listen for a while. So yeah, just generally like grasslands come in many different uh, shapes and forms and heights of grasses and things like that. And they're all kind of valuable to a different little subset of birds too. So we have some birds that really like and need, you know, really tall grass. We have other birds that like really short grass and they're both can be valuable as habitat for different kinds of birds. This is putting you on the spot. Do you know off the top of your head how much habitat loss we have seen over the centuries? Like, I mean, if like, do you you know off the top of your head how much grassland habitat existed before Virginia was like colonized? You know, it's hard to say. And I think um, it depends how far back you look to. I've heard arguments that at one point in time, perhaps Virginia, Virginia was completely forested and there were no grasslands. But I've also heard, no, there probably actually were, you know, these native like prairie pockets throughout the state. We had bison Um, at one point in history. So So I think it depends like how far back you might be looking in the state's history. Um, But the fact of the matter is that you know, farms have created essentially grasslands now, and we have created what appears to be habitat to many of these species. And then when they are kind of drawn in here, um, often we might end up creating what we call population sinks, which means birds are drawn into this area, but are unable to reproduce successfully. And they keep coming back year after year and are never able to actually, you know, have their population flourish at all or even just remain stable. Um, So I think that just the fact that we have this habitat here now, oftentimes, you know, private landowners, public land managers are responsible for the stewardship of this type of land. Um, I think it's just really important for us to be mindful of the different options we have to manage them in ways that are just mindful of the wildlife that are using those fields. And that's such a great point. I I hadn't really thought of it as a population sink, but right, like if we've created these spaces where once, you know, these certain species would have flown over, they would have been like, well, let's keep going because that's not what we need. And now it's almost like we're tricking them. Um. (laughs) Right. And some of these species, like year after year, they're going to keep coming back to the same area. And if they see, you know, there's still this field here, well, when they get here in April or May, it doesn't, they don't know that it's going to be mowed down in a couple of weeks. They get here and they're like, this looks great. I'm going to build a nest. I'm going to lay my eggs. And then that's all she wrote. Sometimes. What's his name? Um, Justin Proctor. Yeah. Correct. He calls Mm -hmm. it carnage. Yeah. Carnage. Um, which is, I mean, the vultures love it. Anytime you see like fresh cut hay, the vultures are all over that field. That (laughs) does make sense. Oh my gosh. I observe that all the time. I mean, they're running over like who knows what out in those fields and the vultures certainly take, anytime I drive past like a fresh cut field, there's like vultures lined up on the fence line. (laughs) Well, now I can answer questions I can answer better. Sometimes people are like, why are these vultures hanging out on my fence post? And now I can probably look and be like, did y'all just mow? Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
All right. Well, let's talk land management. Okay. Um, Let's start with working landowners. So that is primarily what you did you uh-huh. say yeah, primarily? So let's talk about um, the different approaches that, let's see, you might take for working landscaped versus if you're a private landowner, what might you want to know or do about land management? Yeah. So um, most of the landowners and farmers that I work with are usually either, you know, using their grassland habitat on their properties, either as hay or um, grazing cattle or horses or some other kind of livestock. Um, So through the work that I do and through the Piedmont Grassland Bird Initiative, uh, we have created um, an incentive program where we will work with these farmers who are willing to adopt kind of these bird-friendly land management practices. And we have divided that into two separate categories, uh, one of which is delayed hay. So we work with farmers to um, basically delay when they cut their hay until at least July 1st. So essentially they are foregoing um, a first spring cutting, or if they are able to, they can cut really early, like in mid-April. And then they don't do anything to the field until July 1st, when about 80% of grassland birds are pretty much done nesting in the field at that point um, to cut hay. This isn't something that is necessarily going to work for every farmer or it might not work in every field that a farmer has. You know, we recognize that some people are, you know, producing hay like for the equestrian community. And there's an expectation that that hay is going to have a certain nutritional content to it. And we fully recognize that as valid. You know, these people are making a living. They deserve to be able to make a living. Um, So again, it's not like a one size fits all by any means, but there are a lot of people that we might be able to say, okay, what about this one 20 acre field that you have? Could you delay just this field to start? Um, And we will work with them to select um, the most appropriate field in terms of where the highest density of grassland birds likely is. Mm -hmm. So fields that are um, adjacent to forest on multiple sides, they're not likely to have a lot of grassland birds nesting there. So if they are going to hay, that would be um, kind of the ideal place for them to hay first. Um, And then on the flip side, we have people who are grazing livestock. Um, especially people who are grazing cattle. Um, One thing we can do is called summer pasture stockpiling, which is a form of rotational grazing. So essentially they will remove their cattle from the select field uh, from about mid-April to at least mid-July or early August. um, And they will have them grazing elsewhere. And then um, in late summer, they will have put them back on that field. That field will have had all spring and summer to grow a ton of vegetation. So there's essentially a stockpile of standing forage available to the cattle. It extends their grazing season, which means they don't have to spend as much money on supplementally feeding their cattle. Um, There are other forms of rotational grazing as well that can also work for grassland birds. But by removing the cattle completely, we are eliminating the possibility of any nests um, being trampled or being accidentally eaten because cattle and other livestock do accidentally eat the, uh, eggs or young chicks in the nest. Um, I've never thought of that either. Yeah, they can eat the eggs and stuff. Um, so that removes that possibility. It also removes the possibility of 
Um, if the nest is kind of grazed all around, it leaves it a lot more vulnerable to predation. So that's kind of um, our like top tier form of rotational grazing that we like to implement, but there are other forms that might work better for other producers. Honestly, I try to just be really flexible. I want whatever form of land management people are going to implement to be something that is sustainable for them long term. So it's not going to negatively impact, you know, the business that they're running. But, um, you know, in, the, in terms of summer stockpiling, that actually should benefit them. It should help them save money on how they are, you know, having to supplementally feed their cattle. Um, so it might actually save them money in the long run. And often, you know, we just did, this was our first year of the incentives program and we had 10 properties enrolled and many of them have reached out and said they noticed the difference, even just in the first year of how the birds have responded to those fields just being left totally untouched. Um, so that's been really cool. For people who are not doing any sort of agricultural production on their field, I often work with landowners who maybe just bought a property or they're getting older and they don't really want to deal with, you know, cutting hay and that sort of thing anymore. Um, I generally recommend to them to do um, delayed mowing. So if they have a big field um, to mow it, uh, preferably just once a year, but even twice a year can be okay. Um, my recommendation if they're going to do once a year would be to mow it in early, early spring. So like March or really early April. That is going to make sure that that field doesn't grow up with a bunch of woody vegetation, um, so it'll stay an open field, but you're going to cut down that, that vegetation and it's still going to have time to grow up a little bit before the birds start actually nesting in late April or May. Um, we also give the option of uh, mowing after the breeding season, so anytime basically after mid-July um, or early in the fall. That's not my top preference personally, because I like to leave standing vegetation for fall migration and species that are overwintering. They really rely on that structure and cover through the winter and, you know, the available seeds and insects that are overwintering inside uh, the grass stalks and things like that. So ideally, if you're going to manage your field just once a year, try to hit it in March mm -hmm. and you'll see um, a major difference in how the wildlife are responding and using the fuel. You mentioned incentives. Are you fine to say what yeah. incentives there are? For yeah, so we, uh, we financially compensate the people who are participating in this program. So as I mentioned, this is our first year of the program. We received a grant from Cornell um, and we paid them, uh, well, we worked with some partners in the area like Virginia Cooperative Extension, to crunch a bunch of numbers, um, to determine fair market value for them to leave each acre untouched. So we provide a $35 per acre incentive for um, what they don't um, either cut hay or what they're removing their cattle from. So uh, we actually have funding to repeat this again next year. So we will be bringing on um, at least 10 new properties, potentially more for the program next year. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, okay. So what if you're someone like me who just is, one, I'm renting. So I have like no control over anything. Mm -hmm. ever. But what if you're someone like me who doesn't like people's lawns? 
<laughs> what fuel do you have to get right. like me who just want to communicate and hopefully um, maybe sway some small landowners, right, from just yeah. like, mowing their lawn every week for the sake of like, it's also just annoying. Yeah. You have to take a stance on that. No, I've worked with a lot of landowners in multiple positions I've held that are like, I'm sick of mowing every week. Like, what can I do differently? Um, If you are a homeowner and you don't have a ton of land, you know, one thing you can do is uh, plant some trees. And as they grow up, they're going to shade out the grass and you will not have to mow as much. Um, Part of my yard is totally shaded and really all that grows there is like moss so I don't ever have to mow that side of the yard um another thing that's um, really fun to do is to start a pollinator garden um, and plant native plants um, and you can start pretty small you know you can plant just a couple of native plants or you can even have them you know just outside potted somewhere and you're not only going to benefit the birds but the pollinators the you know lots of other critters as well I think a lot of people, um, when it comes to mowing, if they're not like already involved in the conservation world are often worried about ticks and they're worried about snakes. People don't necessarily want to attract those things to their yard, but if you have, you know, native plants in your yard and you have developed kind of this healthy ecosystem, you're going to find the balance. The things that eat the ticks are going to be in your yard more. If you are seeing snakes in your yard, that's predator control. You know, they're eliminating any rodents that are around and things like that. So I think often it's education about um, many of these critters that are like undesirables are actually friends. And if you leave them alone, they'll leave you alone. You know, I'm not necessarily like stoked to see a giant snake like near my house but I know if I leave it alone he's gonna go about his business and it's ultimately not only gonna benefit me or gonna have less rodents and things like that but it's gonna benefit the ecosystem as a whole and you'll eventually start to see that balance kind of come into itself that is where you and I differ I'm like yeah snake you're here. No, I'm not. I feel like I feel like there is like a, a a range of limbs that animals should have. And any deviation on either side of that, I'm like, ooh, it's it creepy. Funny, um, Jen, um, the river steward, yeah, down the river. It's like spiders. I just don't want. I don't want them. I don't. Yeah, want I'm them. not a spider fan either. <laughs> But like you said, like the ecosystem, one of the things we talked about in this recent episode was like, well, if you like birds and you have all these native plants, then it's natural bird feeders. Yeah. Because then they'll eat the insects and the spiders. Yeah. I mean, if they're outside, great. They don't need to be in my house. (laughs) (laughs) Fair, fair, completely fair. Um, Well, I'm kind of speaking of that. So we talked a little bit just about ecosystem. Um, Do you want to speak to any other benefits outside of just knowing you're conserving bird species by these practices? Yeah. So, you know, these practices have benefits aside from just specifically grassland birds. There are lots of other wildlife that utilize grasslands. You know, we have foxes. Um, lots of other little critters that live in these uh, meadows and fields. 
Um, but leaving them unmowed or managing them in a more um, kind of conservation friendly way. It's also great for water quality. Uh, it's great for pollinators. It's, you know, a, a tool to kind of fight against erosion and things like that. So, you know, as we let these plants grow and as we uh, replace invasives and non-natives with natives, those root systems are, can really make a difference for water quality, runoff, erosion, air quality, all those sorts of things. So there are many benefits um, that grasslands provide to us, um, aside from just, you know, grassland birds needing them. Um, we really need them too. Um, and I, this kind of probably went a little bit earlier in the conversation, but I just thought, and I didn't have this note down, um, what is like an ideal acreage for various grassland yeah. species? Um, it, it kind of depends on just the general landscape and um, what kind of the habitat mosaic around it looks like. Like what do the adjacent properties have as well? Probably a minimum of 20 acres would be like grassland bird habitat. But if you are a property and you have 10 acres and your neighbors also have open fields and you're kind of adjacent to them, you're going to have grassland birds using that 10 acres because they don't see the property lines. They just see, oh, there's 50 or 100 acres like all connected right here. And they're, you know, not really necessarily going to discriminate which which property they're nesting on. So small acreage can make a huge difference too, especially when it's within this landscape of, you know, more open habitat. Um, but when it's not within more open habitat, I would say um, probably at least about 20 acres. Okay. That's, that is good to know. And to me, I'm a friendly person. I'm like, well, that just means we should all make friends with our neighbors. Yeah. And we can all work together. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, that's most of my questions, but I have just a couple wrapping up. Remind mm -hmm. us what counties Piedmont Environmental Council serves in case someone is actually listening. Sure. Wants to know more about programs. Yeah. So the Piedmont Environmental Council serves nine counties from Loudoun down to Albemarle. Um, and then the Piedmont Grassland Bird Initiative, um, since we're in partnership with Smithsonian's Virginia Working Landscapes, we actually cover 16 counties. So the same nine counties as PEC, uh, plus some counties in the Shenandoah Valley, um, basically from like Frederick and Clark down to Augusta County. Cool. That's awesome. And then any recommendations for someone or who, how to start trying to find someone like Piedmont Environmental Council or um, Virginia Working Landscapes if they're in another part of the country? Yeah, um, I would say um, I think you can reach out to any probably local environmental nonprofit or state wildlife agency, state environmental agency. You know, at least from my experience in Virginia, if somebody reaches out to me and I'm not necessarily the right person to help them with their request, I am always happy to connect them with the right person. So if you reach out and you're saying, you know, to your state, you know, wildlife biologist with um, the wildlife and fish department or whatever you have in your state, and say, this is what I'm looking for help with. Um, they will probably be able to connect you to the right person if it doesn't happen to be them. Um, conservation is a small world and we all know each other. 
So yeah, when someone reaches out to me and I'm like, Ooh, this isn't really like my area of expertise, but I know the person that can help you. I, yeah, I always am making those connections for people. Amazing. Um, and then finally, and this is, I love all of it, but this is one of my favorite questions. Um, do you want to share a memorable wildlife encounter or a cool critter you've seen recently? Um, you know, I'll say um, I was doing bird surveys on one of the properties that we had enrolled in the incentives program this spring, and they were doing summer stockpiling in this field that was just under 50 acres. Um, and it is really a cool field because when you walk out into it, um, the grass, you know, is like waist deep. And, you know, you're seeing meadowlarks and red-winged blackbirds and grasshopper sparrows. But once I get about halfway out into the field, suddenly I'm just like in this little tornado of bobolinks, like just surrounding me and doing their little R2-D2 song, like just up overhead. It's just like little swirls of them all over in the air. And you don't even hear them when you first walk out into the field. You don't even see them until all of a sudden you there's just like dozens of them. Um, so that was a really cool experience to just like all of a sudden, all of these bobolinks were just like flying all around me um, early in the season when they're kind of still courting each other and chasing each other around and stuff. That was, that was a pretty cool experience this season. I'm dying. I would probably fall out and die. Yeah, it's a great property. They had, I mean, all of our properties that were in the incentives program had a lot of success this year. We had some that reached out and said they um, have heard more Bob White quail than they've ever heard on the property before. We had someone who said, um, this is the first year she's ever seen bobolinks on her property. They didn't stay and breed, but it's the first year they've actually stopped at her property, like on their way to breed somewhere. So it's been just really exciting to see um, how it's developing and how even like in the first season, it's making a difference. All right. I thought that was going to be my last question, but now, (laughs) now my follow-up question is, um, is there a particularly imperiled species that you got to get really excited to be like, oh, we surveyed and found this bird? Um, there is a property in, uh, Fauquier County that, um, they have been observing some Henslow sparrows. Um, which are not very common around here. And I've been on some properties in the area that have actually had dick thistles on them. We are just like on the very edge of dick thistle range. We don't see them very commonly, um, but we've had a couple properties where we've been doing surveys or we've worked with those landowners on research long-term. So that's been pretty cool. It's always cool to see something that um, is not necessarily like rare to see, but it's like, oh, what are you doing here? Kind of. Right, right, right. I know we talked a little bit about um, loggerhead shrikes. Yeah, I've actually never seen one. So, I mean, there's not very many left in Virginia. Um, I have not had the good fortune of actually even seeing one in Virginia yet. So I don't think I've ever seen one in Virginia either. I have only seen them out West and in Florida. You know, hopefully um, you, they're not necessarily grassland obligates. You know, they don't nest on the ground, but they do utilize grassland habitats, especially when they're adjacent to kind of like these shrubby areas Uh you know, hedgerows and fence rows with shrubby vegetation. So 
hopefully as we get more landowners on board with, you know, how they're managing their grasslands and adjacent habitat, maybe we'll start to see um, a little bit of uptick in their numbers in Virginia. One can hope. One can only hope. And then that brings up a great point because I'm pretty sure we did not define grassland obligate. We mentioned a little bit like our kestrels and our mm-hmm. um, and our northern harriers, which really do enjoy hunting. Mm-hmm. But but would they not be considered an obligate because they don't actually have to have grasslands to reproduce? Right. So um, grassland birds is kind of this catch-all term that we use for birds that are utilizing grasslands at some point in their life for something. And there's many different reasons that birds might be using grasslands. So we have um, species that we consider to be grassland obligates, meaning they need grasslands. They are nesting directly on the ground in the grasses like our eastern meadowlarks, our bobolinks, our grasshopper sparrows. Um, they would not be able to reproduce without grasslands because they need, they nest right down in the grasses. Mm -hmm. Then we have um, our cavity nesting birds. So we have American kestrels and barn owls, um, eastern bluebirds that they don't nest on the ground, but they nest in cavities adjacent to grasslands usually. And they often spend time either hunting or foraging over grasslands. And that's usually where they're finding their main food source. Um, Here in Virginia, we also have some birds that um, are just overwintering grassland birds here. So our shorted owls and our northern harriers, um, we don't really see them during the breeding season. Um, I think there's very, very few records of northern harriers ever breeding in the state of Virginia. But they are uh, fairly common in the winter in these fields. Um, You'll often see them kind of gliding low over the fields at dusk. um, And they actually spend a lot of time during the day just sitting on the ground in these fields in the clumps of grass um, as camouflage. And often they will roost um, in large groups together in these fields. Um, I will walk up on that. That Yeah, so sometimes if you're walking through a field... (laughs) Just all of a sudden, like a dozen short-eared owls will just like fly up in front of you. They have such great camouflage and they will just sit there on the ground basically until you're right up on top of them. Um, And then of course we have, you know, birds that are just kind of migrating through that are foraging um, or, you know, resting in areas adjacent to our grasslands, hunting over the grasslands and that sort of thing. So a lot of different reasons why birds use grasslands, um, important for all of them. Um, A lot of the work that we do generally focuses on the grassland obligates that are nesting on the ground Mm -hmm. and the cavity nesters that um, are relying on grasslands to be able to hunt and forage. Thank you so much for all this information. Yeah, totally. Sharing sharing your bobolink story um, because that sounds beautiful. I know my favorite things are flocking, like when birds are flocking. Yeah. So that's awesome. Um, Anything else you want to share? You good? Yeah, I think. That's, That's probably all. all. Yeah. I appreciate you. Um, totally. Anytime. If you like buttons and stickers, the next time I see you, I can give you buttons and stickers. Oh, I, I'm always happy to take a sticker. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Well, um, thank you so much, Octavia. Yeah. Thanks, April. And see you around. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Grace and Harlow for our theme music. You can find us on Instagram at All the Critters Pod to see updates and pictures of our adventures. Each week, we'll donate a portion of our proceeds to an environmental charity. We'll put their information in the show notes. Now go catch and protect them all.